A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimsbare Brüder in America. So kaufen Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Yehuda Geberer with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by Genazim Auction House, an auction of Judaica and all kinds of fascinating historical artifacts this coming Wednesday on July 28th, 2021. And the Genazim, one of the more prestigious auction houses, who always have such great stuff, uh, their auctions, and I've looked at the catalog this time. Um, I really want to encourage listeners to do what I've done and look at the catalog and check it out and and uh, I'm, I'm thinking about which ones to place bids myself, so I'm, I think it's a good idea for everyone else to place bids. There's almost no other place where you could find such a wealth and diversity of Jewish history at your fingertips, from old uh, books and manuscripts um, to um, his, you know, all kinds of letters and, 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 and sfarim and things like that from across the Jewish world and the world of of uh, Yemen and North Africa and Europe and the land of Israel and the United States and Eastern Europe and Western Europe from all over the place from all ages literally from a thousand years ago till till the last uh, decades um, very exciting it's 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 just a lot of fun to even look at the catalog and there's going to be inevitably things that you're going to uh, that will pique your interest and that you like check out the catalog at www.genazim. That's G-E-N-A-Z-Y-M, Genazim.com. And I'll post all the information in the text of the episode and on all the Jewish History Soundbite social media, so it'll be easily, you can easily find it. As I was going through the catalog, a few things caught my attention. There's this amazing ledger uh, from a Shadar, from um, a fundraiser from Tveria, from the Tveria Jewish community in the 1800s. Um, the Shadarim, you know, there were all these, these fundraisers who came to uh, raise money for the Yishuv, the old Yishuv uh, in the land of Israel. In the early years, it was for the old Sephardic communities. And later on, in the 19th and 20th centuries, it was for the newly established Ashkenazi Jewish communities. And there, in this this travels that this Shadar, this, uh, this uh, fundraiser had done from Tveria, he went all over Western Europe, Holland and France and Germany and everywhere else, parts of Poland as well. He has signatures from different rabbis. Rabbi Kiva Eger appears there and many other famous rabbis. And there's profiles of Jewish communal life of the 250 Jewish communities that this fellow visited. It's like 
a window to to the 19th century from a first-hand primary source. Uh, these Shadarim often had the most exposure. Very often they were great rabbis. A great example is like the Chida, a century or two earlier. Um, so they might be the most fascinating historical document in the entire auction is this ledger uh, about the Jewish world at the time. Um, the wealth of primary source of information in the window into Jewish communal life and rabbinical life at the time is probably unmatched. Uh, like I said, Rabbi Kiva Eger and other people as well appear in there. There's a Bamberg Gemara, volume of from the Gemara, uh, Bamberg Shas, uh, Daniel Bamberg, in the early 1520s, was a Christian, um, and he employed Jews in his uh, Venice uh, printing press. He printed the first complete Shas in history. Um, and his edition has become the standardized edition. This is the pioneering Jewish printing. And he printed a Mikrais Gedailis, he printed Yerushalmi, he printed a lot of things. And these volumes are extremely rare. And that's, I mean, that's a piece of history right there. There's all kinds of old Tanakhs. There's a Gemara, speaking of Gemaras, of Rav Hirsch Mishares of Rimenov. There's a student of Rimendel of Rimenov who succeeded him as the as the Rebbe in Rimenov. He's an interesting person in the annals of the Hasidic movement and that he was not a son or son-in-law of the previous Rebbe. He was not even, even a primary student in the traditional sense. He was rather, as his name implies, a Mishares. He was the attendant of Remendel of Rimenov and there was opposition at first as to his becoming Rebbe. Later on, his widow, after his passing, married the Rizhner, of Israel Friedman of Rizhn, so, um who raised, the Rizhner raised Rabbi Hirsch Mishares' son Yosef, who took the Friedman last name, and Rabbi Yosef Friedman eventually returns to Rimenov and became a Rebbe. So this volume of Talmud belonged to Rabbi Hirsch Mishares. That's a tangible piece of history of the Hasidic manuscript from Metz in Yiddish, a chronicle, uh, some sort of history pamphlet, a very important historical document. Metz is one of the most famous, most prominent Jewish communities of Western Europe, situated in Alsace-Lorraine. Uh, Glickel of Hamelin, the famous Jewish woman who was a memoirist, a memoirist, a chronicler of the 18th century, lived there. The Shagasari was a rabbi there, by Leib Ginsburg, many others as well. So in 1669, a fellow by the name of Rafal Levi, who wasn't, didn't even live there, he lived in a village nearby, was accused of ritual murder, and he was later killed. He could have saved himself by becoming Christian, and he did not. And this uh, pamphlet, written at the time, records the whole story. So it's a very important uh, historical document. I also saw there a letter of the Divrei Chaim of Tzans, um, a halachic response that he wrote in regards to a famous divorce case of the time. This is in the last years of his life. He was already over 80 years old when he authored it in 1873. And at the time, he was recognized not only as one of the greatest Hasidic leaders of Galicia, with an influence in Hungary as well, he was also one of the most influential Paiskin, in his capacity as halachic decisor, that that's when he wrote and authored this. And of course, he signs it as well. So it's, it's signed and and written by the Divrei Chaim himself. There's all kinds of interesting letters, a whole section of letters of great people. There's a letter of Rabbi Yisrael of Shklov, who was a student of the Vilna Gain, a leader of the Aliyah, of the of the students of the Vilna Gain and the old Yishev. Um, he had a very difficult life, and it's reflected in this letter. It's a letter written to Baghdad after the riots in 1836. A year later was the famous earthquake in Sfas also, but this is before that. There's letters from the Nitziv and his family. There's letters from the Rabbi Shuolei Diskin, from the Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Chanan Wasserman, and many, many others. Very, very interesting and, and historical letters. Rabbi Chaim Meiser Gorjinsky. These letters are historical documents about historical events, primary sources, authored by famous participants in real time. So it has amazing value. And I really 
I really like, you know, wanted to grab them out of the screen and, and, and try to own them. So I think all of you will as well. This is an example of Chaim Oyser-Grudzinski's letter. is written in 1939, shortly a year before his passing. And it's after the Great Arab Revolt in Palestine in the, the years 1936 to 1939. And, uh, and uh, after the Great Arab Revolt, the British implemented the White Paper to limit uh, Jewish immigration to Palestine. So there was violence, anti-British violence that erupted from underground groups in in uh, Jewish underground groups uh, at the time. So Reb Chaim Eiser states that violence and murder against the British uh, in protest against the White Paper and other colonial policies is not the correct Torah way. We don't do violence, we don't do murder, this is not the Torah way. And he's writing a very strongly worded letter against murder and violence uh, and these underground groups. And the commentary on Genazim, they write a commentary in each exhibit, they write in the commentary that it was the underground groups Eitzel and Lechi. Now they obviously only meant Eitzel, Etzel, not Eitzel, Etzel, because the Lechi was only founded in 1940, and I'm sure they knew that, they just by mistake wrote Lechi also. Um, maybe Reb Chaim Eizer had Ruach HaKadosh, and he knew that in a year from now, that there would be something new founded called the Lechi, but perhaps. Either way, so that's just a few things I got carried away, that was 10 minutes. Um, uh, carried away there. It's, uh, there's so many more stuff. I could go on forever about this catalog. So I always suggest that uh, I suggest that you all uh, check it out. And um, speaking of Reb Chaim Eiser, I think we'll talk a little bit about Reb Chaim Eiser today. But before that, we have another tribute to make. Are there any Gentiles here listening to this podcast? Oh, it's a krachen, it's a haggit. And with that, I want to have a short tribute to Jackie Mason, one of the greatest uh, Jewish comedian, comedians ever. Uh, he just died yesterday at the age of 93, uh, born Meza, Jack Meza, Yaakov Meza, um, which stands for Mizera Aaron. It's a uh, Kohen family, uh, rabbinic family. There was actually a Rav Mitam, a, uh, the government rabbi in Moscow was a fellow with the name of Rabbi Yaakov Meza. He was famous. He, he uh, attended the 1910 uh, conference in St. Petersburg, which I'll get to soon. And he also uh, was the main expert uh, witness at the Bayless trial. Um, so it's a rabbinical family. Um, uh, Jackie Mason went to MTJ and had rabbinical ordination from MTJ. I don't know if it was actually from Ramesha Feinstein himself or it was from the yeshiva MTJ. I don't know if we would call him a actual student of Ramesha or student of MTJ who got smicha from there. Whatever it is, he became a rabbi and then he drifted into comedy and left uh, traditional Jewish life, to say the least. But in many ways, he was like his... Something, some program he had. It was called the Ultimate Jew. He was in many ways the Ultimate Jew. It was very Jewish way of speaking, very uh, Jewish humor, very New Yorkish. One of the greatest Jewish humor comedians of the 20th century. Um, in in the, you know in his Yiddish that he threw in and his mannerisms and the stereotypes. Megait, Mishpringt. A few of his jokes. I mean, I grew up with this. This is like a part of part of my upbringing. My my chinuch. Um, he. Remember one of his lines was, uh, a Jew may buy a farm or sell a farm, he will not work on a farm. And he spoke about, the, I remember speaking about the peace process back in, uh, in the early 2000s. They'd love to give the West Bank back. Uh, there's no boardwalk, what are they going to do with it? Eric Sharon would give it all back, he just can't, it's in his wife's name. And uh, I remember there was another thing he had about Jews gambling, uh, I was uh, a Jew at a blackjack table gets very religious. You think that God has nothing better to do than to listen to a Jew gambling. 
And of course, there's so much more. He was one of my famous, uh, he was one of my favorites growing up, and he left, definitely has left his mark on humor, on comedy, and on Jewish history. But going back to more serious topics, so I mentioned the letter from Rabbi Moiser. So, um, speaking of his letter, um, I wanted to talk about Rabbi Moiser. I once, back in the day, did an episode on Rabbi Moiser Grzynski, the great uh, Jewish leader, pre-war Jewish leader in Vilna and worldwide, and I'll repost that as well, a part of this episode. But there's so much more. There's so much more. He was the quintessential leader with the leadership qualities, the skills, and the action. And something to really hold as a paradigm to true Jewish leadership and responsibility um, that uh, many yearn for in, in, in the contemporary uh, world. So there's so much more to discuss from his active, very active life and career. Recently, Reb David Kamenetsky, uh, he authored a book, which is just volume one, that covers Reb Chaim Oezer's uh, life. It's a biography um, profiling his life and career. And volume one only covers his life until the year 1910. Um, so I really can't wait for the coming volumes because he really did an amazing job with uh, volume one. It's in Hebrew, but I highly recommend everyone read it. It's a fantastic book. I just recently finished reading it, Be'iyun. I skimmed through it originally when I got it, and then I read it in depth with every single footnote without missing a word in the whole book. It took me a few months, a really 700-page book. It was a real avayda, and it's fascinating and a comprehensive work. And, you know, I've, I've heard from listeners over the past few months that they have complaints about the book, and there are some issues, and it could be there are. I'm sure every book in the world has drawbacks uh, as well, but uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, so, um, you know, coming off of the, under the spell of his book, so I wanted to share some of the uh, uh, stories and ideas that he brings about. Um, so it's really all coming from that book. It's called Rabban Shel Kol B'nei HaGoyla, Rabbeinu Chaim Eiser, in Hebrew. I think it's available in all stores, and, and, uh, and it's really fantastic. So I just want to focus on one aspect of his leadership. It's actually mentioned uh, by his brother-in-law, by Reb Chaim Eiser's brother-in-law, Reb Kasovsky, who was a rabbi in South Africa. And he, in his, a short tribute to Reb Chaim Eiser, shortly after his passing, he mentions uh, Reb Chaim Eiser's participation and active leadership and even initiation of several rabbinical conferences in Tsarist Russia. And he felt like this is really an expression of Reb Chaim Eiser's leadership, the fact that he took such an active role at all these different conferences and how in among peers, among fellow rabbis, among fellow leaders, he still, you know, shined, and he still was like a head and shoulders above the rest as the central leader. And this is what's even more surprising is that he wasn't a charismatic speaker because he had a throat ailment which plagued him throughout his life, and he wasn't really able to speak publicly. It was very difficult for him, and he almost never did. And even when he did, it was very short, and he wasn't a dynamic or charismatic speaker. It was. Really, his wisdom and his ways of dealing with people, and the force of his personality, and his 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 brilliance, his his his, his way of getting things done. He's such a practical, very pragmatic person. Very, you know, um, action more about action than words. And in the book, there's a chapter devoted to each and every conference. Its background, its context, its personalities. It's absolutely fascinating how each conference that Reb Chaim Meiser participated in, and some of them he even initiated, um, there's a, a whole chapter, a whole, a, whole, you know, a whole story in itself. So um, one of the interesting things about it is that many of these conferences had disappointing results. Some might, might even classify it as, uh, as failures. 
uh, while others produced some tangible results, but fell low, this, even then they fell low of the expectations and the efforts expended for it. Yet Reb Chaim Eiser was never deterred. He kept on going. He also, you know, changed his leadership and his talents and his status grew as a result of each conference in so many ways. Um, so despite that some of the conferences didn't produce so much on a macro scale as far as Russian Jewry was concerned, it still serves as an important chapter in Jewish history, especially since the lack of success was usually attributed to the fact of the limitations of uh, Jews in the Russian Empire at the time and the, the limitations that the Tsarist government imposed on, uh, on Jewish organization in general and Jewish politics uh, specifically. Um, so, you know, it was never really their fault. Um, so the, the idea, you know, the, 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 it, it, it's hard to, how to, you know, it's a good question how to quantify the success or lack thereof. But the idea that, that these conferences did take place and were organized and they did try to get things done, I think, is a strong statement. And in the long term, it, it probably ultimately did produce some results. So the number one, one of the, the first, these, these conferences all took place in, this, in the ones that I'm talking about now, that the book discusses, is uh, four um, conferences that took place uh, between the years 1907 and 1910. One wasn't really a conference, it was an attempt at, an or, at founding an organization, was the founding of Knesset Yisrael uh, in the winter of 1907. This is a an organization which is fascinating. It's pre Agudas Yisrael. Agudas Yisrael does not exist. Uh, one of the next ones is about the founding of Agudas Yisrael. This is before that, 1907, and this is an Eastern European version. Agudas Yisrael is founded by German Jews. This is in Russia. Again, Eastern European Jewry is primarily under the Tsarist Russian Empire at the time. There is no independent Poland. There is no independent Lithuania. Um, and um, there are Jews in Galicia, which is under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but for the most part, the largest Jewish community in the world at the turn of the century is Russian Jewry, that despite the millions that are busy emigrating from Russia, there are still over 5 million Jews in in the Russian Empire. So you're talking about it's a massive, it's, it's by far the largest uh, Jewish population in the world. Um, so the, the Knesset Yisrael is the attempt of traditional Jewry, to uh, organize themselves. And this is completely the initiative of Rabbi Chaim Oizer Grzynski. It's an amazing thing. He spearheads the entire effort, lock, stock, and barrel, from beginning to end, A to Z. Um, it's probably the first attempt at politically unifying and organizing traditional Jewry in the Russian Empire. Remember, Blazer Gordon of Tells was heavily involved. Um, also, Rabbi Chaim Mezel of, of Lodz, Rabbi Chaim Brisker, um, Rabbi David Friedman of Karlin, Rabbi David Karliner. And these, these were among the most influential rabbis uh, in Russian Jewry at the time. Uh, Non-Hasidic Russian Jewry, of course. Um, the goals were to unite traditional Jewry in Russia, both Hasidic and non-Hasidic, into one organization to provide a solution to both the physical and spiritual challenge, challenges facing uh, Jewish life in Russia uh, at the turn of the century. And there were many, many challenges. It was not an easy time economically and Spiritually, and this is you know the, two years after the failed revolution, the Jewish street um, had become very radicalized. There was a you know big move towards secularization, and they and Reb Chaim Meiser thought that a, a traditional response would only be feasible possible because the kahal, the Jewish communal life, you know was basically, basically out out out. It was it lost all their power, lost all their uh, influence. So a national organization was imperative to to accomplish what what could be saved for traditional Jewry. So um, Chaim Meiser authored a pamphlet 
well, he called it the Sefer Hatakonis, uh, all the, uh, what, the, the program, basically his vision, uh, what would be clarifying the goals of the movement, which he submitted to the Russian government. All these things had to be official. In order for them to gather together, they had to be official. You had to get a license from the government for rabbis to get together in one room. So Tsarist Russia wasn't easy to get anything done. So in order for them to even think of starting getting an organization off the ground, they had to submit a program to the Tsarist government. So we have it. It, it exists because of that. Um, among other things, this uh, Sefer Hatakanas, this pamphlet, discusses unemployment, equal rights for Russian Jewry, and other seemingly non-religious values that rabbinical leaders at the time of the caliber of Reb Chaim Weiser, who is, as true leaders, who had true responsibility for the community, they felt that these issues were also important enough to be on the agenda of this new religious organization. And it's not just limited to religious causes such as Jewish education and the, uh, and the stuff like that. Um, so ultimately, the reason it wasn't successful was the inability to get the requisite licensing from the Tsarist government. So as usual, it was circumstances that were beyond Reb Chaim Eiser's control, which brought to its unfortunate demise uh, prior to its even rising in the first place. So life was very challenging for Jews under the Romanovs, and uh, political limitations were the least of it. Um, so the Knesset Yisrael did not get off the ground. So what did Knesset Yisrael accomplish? It accomplished that this whole flurry of correspondence and this attempted organization and meeting together galvanized uh, the traditional community and galvanized the rabbinic leadership and prepared them that uh, that we have to get a move on. We have to have a religious response. We have to have a traditional response to what's going on. Jewish political parties are, are being organized left and right, literally left and right, uh, on the left and on the right nationalism and socialism and the Jewish Bund and, and, and cultural autonomy and all kinds of things, and also communism, right? Joining general political movements also. And if traditional Jewry doesn't have a legitimate response, then what's going to be with the future of Russian Jewry? So it was felt that this was... And this, uh, this, so this laid the groundwork. This laid the seeds. Anything that came afterwards, including Agudas Yisrael, was built upon the foundation of, that Reb Chaim Eiser established with the Knesset Yisrael. He even writes like that when he is discussing the founding of Agudas Israel. He mentions how it's related to the uh, original idea of Knesset Israel. So the number two that I want to say is talk about is the Vilna Conference in 1909. In the spring of 1909 is the Vilna Conference, which is Reb Chaim Eiser's hometown. So he's kind of like not exactly hosting it, but you know he's naturally in a place in a place in a position of of where it's you know it's it's his. Uh, he has a home court advantage. It's kind of like the uh, the Japanese Olympic team uh, as we speak. Uh, so Lahavdil. So the um, so the, uh, the the um, the so it, it, this conference was in preparation for what was going to be a much bigger conference, the Saint Petersburg Rabbinical Conference, called by the Tsarist government for the next year, which I'm going to get to also. So the Vilna conference was in preparation for that. That the rabbis decided to gather about how to come up with an agenda for the St. Petersburg Conference and to be on the same page that everyone should discuss what, what, what issues need to be brought up by the St. Petersburg Conference, how they're going to elect delegates, how they're going to ensure that traditional elements, that the, that the real rabbis, the, uh, the traditional rabbis and not the, the, uh, the crown rabbis, the Rav Mitams, should, they want the, you know, the traditional rabbis to get elected as delegates to the St. Petersburg Conference. And all this needs to be discussed. So they got a license from the local Vilna governor of the Tsarist government that there can be a rabbinical conference in Vilna to prepare for the greater conference in St. Petersburg. And um, 
This is, um, so it was called, the, the, the meeting was initiated by, again, by Rabbi Chaim Eiser, the Rebbe the Rashab of Chabad, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, who was a major, one of the greatest leaders of, of Russian Jewry and one of the activists and, and always you know, getting things done. And he had his people in St. Petersburg, um, Shmuel something training, and he had, his, he had rabbis all over the Russian Empire who were his followers. He was always, you know, able to get things done. So he was a, arranged the licensing for the meeting and sent out the invitations. And he sent invitations to who he wanted by the meeting. So Reb Chaim Weiser, uh, didn't always see eye to eye with that. He wasn't so happy about who got invited, but that's another story. And then the conference is hosted in Vilna to plan the agenda for the upcoming St. Petersburg Conference. And it was also how to vote, like I said, for the delegates. The previous conferences, previous rabbinical conferences uh, in St. Petersburg, which were, again, these the ones in St. Petersburg were, were, were invited and, and created by the Tsarist government. Whenever they decided that, uh, you know, to update their policy on the Jews, they called a rabbinical conference. So previous conferences had minimal, minimal or even no, no traditional rabbis present at the conference altogether, which was once uh, derided in the press as a rabbinical conference without rabbis. Ve'idas Rabbanim Leloi Rabbanim. That was the headline in the, in the Hebrew uh, uh, media at the time. So this time there was a successful attempt to get the majority of the delegates elected as traditional rabbis. Um, so, and that was because they had, were able to have this uh, pre, pre-conference in, in Vilna, which, which uh, pushed for that. At this pre-conference in Vilna, one of the, one of the uh, people who attended for part of it, only a couple of days, was the Ger Rebbe, the Emre Emes, who had uh, only become Rebbe four years earlier and was already rising as a, as a um, leader of Polish Jewry. And since Poland was part of the Russian Empire, then so he was part of that uh, story. And when he came, like I mentioned earlier, about the uh, Imre Emes, the Ger Rebbe's library, so he was very into books and libraries, so he visited the world-famous Strashen Library in Vilna. That was his first stop before he even went, I don't know if it was his first stop. While he was at the conference, he made sure to make a, another stop in Vilna at the Strashen Library. It's his opportunity to be in Vilna. He's not just going to sit at a conference the whole time. He wanted to see the Strashen Library. There is a legend that's brought in some sources that Kamenetsky makes sure to refute that the Avnei Nezer of Sochachev Ram um, Barnstein of Sachachev, the son-in-law of the Kutzker, uh, he that he attended, and uh, it's not true. Uh, Kamenetsky successfully proves that uh, Davne Nezer did not attend, pretty much because he wasn't alive at the time, and uh, so that's a legend. But the protocols of this these meetings, which lasted several days, survives until today, and he brings it. Kamenetsky brings the whole thing in great detail in the book as well as newspaper reports, and the Rashab's letters. The Rashab wrote many letters describing what went on at this conference, and that's a major primary source uh, for this uh, meeting, this conference as well. And already at this preliminary conference, the burning issue of the day was the rabbinate, and getting rid of the double rabbinate, the Rav Mitam in each and every town, and the official rabbi, the, the unofficial rabbi rather, the traditional rabbi, the religious rabbi, the Rav Mitam was the government rabbi, the one who was recognized by the government, who was basically a bureaucrat who just registered the births and the uh, and the uh, marriages and deaths and divorces and stuff like that. And then and he's the only one because he, you know, he had official license. He knew Russian. He had he had he had graduated from a school that had general studies. So he was licensed, and he was called the Rav Mitam, the government rabbi, which you know. He was, he was a bureaucrat, very often not even religious, nothing to do with the rabbinate altogether. Uh, whereas the unofficial, not recognized by the government, was the traditional rabbi, who was the, basically the real religious leader of the town, who, was, who were you know, some of the greatest rabbis 
in 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 the, in the world where, where rabbis in towns in Russia, and um, so they all, it was became an issue, and and the idea was to get rid of the double rabbin. It was, a lot, it was an issue because of a lot of reasons, economic and and social and religious and many many other reasons. And Reb Chaim Moiser proposed requesting of the government along with others at the conference, or proposed requesting of the government to authorize and license the real or traditional or religious, however you want to call it, rabbis, very similar to the situation that was going on in Poland at the time, um, which Poland was part of the Russian Empire, but wasn't exactly in the Pale of Settlements, and had different laws were applied to it, and the Polish rabbis were recognized by the government, which was a minimal licensing, just the basic knowledge of Russian and basic general uh, uh, knowledge that every rabbi had there, and they were all legitimate rabbis. So he wanted to have the same thing in the pale, in, 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 uh, in regular uh, Russia. So that was, um, that, was, that was one. And that was preparation for the St. Petersburg Conference, which I'll get back to in a second. But the third conference was the Bad Hamburg uh, Conference, which is a t- small resort town right outside of Frankfurt in Germany. And that was in the summer of 1909, which led to the founding of Agudis Yisrael in Katowice, in 1912, and this was the initiative of Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Rabinowitz, Rabinovich, close friend and confidant of Rabbi Chaim Grudzinski, had studied in Valazhin, later on moved to Germany, he dabbled in Jewish history, he wrote the Doris Harishayinim about the time of Chazal to refute all kinds of other historians at the time, and he was a huge activist until his untimely passing, um, shortly before World War One, and German Jews in Frankfurt founded what eventually became Agudas Yisrael. The idea of the Bad Hamburg Conference was to have an East meets West meeting between the great rabbis of Russia and the activists in Frankfurt who had founded this organization. And that was the Bad Hamburg Conference. And being that it came from an outside initiative, it came from Frankfurt, so it was not related to the current issues in Russia, so some Russian rabbis had reservations. The Rebbe the Rashab of Lubavitch, Reb Chaim Brisker and others, they had these reservations about uh, the influence of, of the German the German Jews and the Frankfurt uh, ideas. And these would become come to haunt uh, later, so it would be a you know, point of contention later on in the founding of Yudas Yisrael. And Reb Chaim Oizer's letters to Rabbi Isaac Halevi find expression to these challenges and his very, you see there also in, in this type of conference where it's a lot of different issues here because it's an East meets West uh, Tense situation of how he knew how to deal with people and how he knew how to read situations and saw that, and you know he had a vision of seeing what the challenges were going to be and how to solve them and what's going to present insurmountable challenges and he was very on target with all his uh, uh, um, you know predictions and how and how to deal with it. The fourth rabbinical conference was the famous Saint Petersburg rabbinical conference called by the Tsar, the Ravinska Commissia in Russia and uh, in Russian. And it was lasted five weeks in the spring of 1910. It was from a couple of weeks before Purim until almost Pesach. It started a week or two before Purim. And the conference naturally took a break for the days of, of, of Tainas Esther and Purim itself. In fact, Kamenetsky brings a newspaper report about, uh, he cites a, a, a newspaper article about what it was like for Purim. He had 43 delegates, many of them some of the greatest rabbis in the entire Russian Empire. And how do they celebrate Purim together, first of all, and in the Russian capital. So um, it's a very funny story, actually. He says that how in the Sarapaner Hotel, the Rashab uh, of Lubavitch had three large rooms and lots of expensive drinks and a very fun and great, uh, very exciting Fabrengen over Purim with music and Chasidus and, and, you know, the real, real Lebedeka Purim. 
and they're very loud, and some of the non-Jewish guests at the hotel complained that they're making too much noise. There was one kosher restaurant, the Garfinkel's Restaurant in St. Petersburg, which was many, where many of the rabbis had their meals, so they had their Purim Suda, their Purim meal there as well. And some of the rabbis, it said in the newspaper, got inebriated, as is the mitzvah on Purim. And then the newspaper reported, and again, it's cited in the book by Kamenetsky in a footnote, that many of the rabbis brought Mishleach Manais to Reb Chaim Brisker. And included in them were some expensive bottles of whiskey. And he only took uh, what he planned on using. He declared, what I won't use, I will not accept. But a good pack of cigarettes is something else, though. That's, end quote. I'm just quoting from the book. And uh, uh, that was a funny story about Purim. But if we get back to the conference itself, so this last conference, this uh, St. Petersburg Rabbinical Conference, is definitely the biggest story of all. And interestingly enough, it produced the fewest results, unfortunately. Um... It's over a hundred pages in the book is, is, uh, is just covering this uh, this rabbinical conference in St. Petersburg. Uh, in reality, I can probably do a several part series just about this conference. So fascinating, and the personalities that were involved, and the the, go, the back and forth. I touched on it actually already in an episode about the Or Sameach, or Mayor Simcha of Dvinsk at this 1910 conference, and the involvement of the Chavetz Chaim, who was not a delegate to the conference but showed up. And there's all kinds of myths and legends surrounding the Chavetz Chaim's being there. There's the protocols of this conference, newspaper reports, there's a pamphlet written and published by the Rashab about the conference, and it was chaired by one of the most powerful, probably the most powerful Jew in Russia at the time, Baron David Ginsburg, and some of the most famous rabbis attended, Reb Chaim Weizer Gudensky, Reb Chanach Henech Aigish the Marcheshes, uh, Reb Chaim Brisker, Reb Meir Simchav Dvins, Reb Malkil Tannenbaum, the Rav of Lamja, the Radzina Rebbe, the Sakalova Rebbe, and of course prominently, like I said, the Rashab of Lubavitch, and the several of the leading rabbis there were actually followers of the Rashab of Lubavitch. And there was also the Kapust, the Rebbe of Chabad, the Babroisk, really, Babroisk Rebbe, Shmaya Noyach Schneerson, Rebbe Udaleb Tsirilson of Kishinev, Rebbe Lazar Rabinovich of Minsk, Rebbe Yaakov Meza of Moscow, I mentioned earlier, Rebelia Feinstein of of Prujan, Rebellia Prujaner, and there was also a progressive faction who were not rabbis, or they were rabbis mitam. Um, I found the story of all of these conferences quite gripping, and Reb Chaim Weiser's leadership role and initiative, and the responsibility that he shouldered for the general community, uh, quite outstanding. In summary, Reb Chaim Weiser's role was not as a charismatic speaker. And like I said, he didn't speak very often altogether. His leadership and organizational ability was on display in the initiative and in the organizing of each conference, the incredible flurry of correspondence, how he wrote to every person, back and forth, the coordination, amazing coordination between all sides, his pragmatic way of dealing with things, his practical uh, solutions, always looking for the practical, you know, you know more, less so the ideological, more the practical. Um, and the activist approach becomes very apparent. His reading of people and different personalities, the viewpoints and how to deal with them, to come to the fore. And, his, and also very impressive is his follow-up, implementing the decisions after the conferences, writing them up, moving on to the next stage, both taking responsibilities and delegating responsibilities. An amazing profile. One of them was by the rabbinical conference in, in uh, St. Petersburg about how he supported the position that rabbis should know Russian and be recognized by the government, a very practical and pragmatic uh, reality in the Tsarist Re- Russian Empire, not taking the ideological stance, uh, you know, the very conservative ideological stance that the Rishab and Reb Chaim Brisker supported. And Reb Chaim Weiser's uh, position uh, held the day. The, the majority voted in his favor. But uh, again, like uh, the, the ways of, of just getting things done, being a man of action and responsibility and leadership, 
um, really comes out in each and every one of these conferences. That's a little bit more about Reb Chaim Isaac This is Yehuda Geber with uh, Jewish History Soundbites. You can uh, reach me at uh, Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to check out the Gnazim Action at Gnazim.com. Auction. Sorry, did I say action? Auction. There's a lot of action at the auction. And uh, you, to follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed. <laughs>